Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. I am George Armistead. I am here with my co-hosts, Molly Brown and Alvaro Jaramillo. Guys, how are you doing today? Hello. Hey, doing great. Excellent. Busy day. Busy, busy time. Busy day. Fun stuff, though. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I'm going to warn everybody um, ahead of time that Al has boat voice again. Hello. Hey. <laughs> He's working <laughs> very hard again. Yep. Yeah. Pelagic season. Al's voice drops an octave or two. Right. From the screaming. Yeah. You know. Yelling school. Laser and albatross. <laughs> you know, that, that scream. Oh, yes. A, That's it, a good scream to hear. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you can just interrupt our podcast with that sometimes. Yeah, really. Yeah, I, did. <laughs> I didn't get to scream it out because because um, um, Eli Gross found it, but we had a Hawaiian petrel too yesterday, number oh, yeah. five for this season in that's three absurd. trips. You ought to be ashamed yeah. of yourself. That's 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 I know. that's a lot. That's <laughs> did you get to, to yell rare. that one out? No, no, because yeah, it was. I didn't spot that one, so it was like you know. Gotcha. I was talking to somebody, and suddenly it was like, "What?" <laughs> nice. Excellent. Well, guys, we have a great guest here today, one we have been anxious to get on our show for a while. And we are very happy to welcome David Lindo, the urban birder, broadcaster, writer, speaker, tour leader, and educator with the mission of engaging city people around the world with the environment where they live He's the author of the book, The Urban Birder, Tales from the Concrete Jungles, Urban Birding, How to Be an Urban Birder, and the Extraordinary World of Birds. David, we're so thankful to have you here. How are you doing today? You know what? I am delighted to be here, guys. Um, And I'm doing okay, actually. I'm here in southwestern Spain in a region called Extremadura. Um, which may be known by some people watching or listening to this podcast. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been, life is good, actually. I've got two legs and I'm still breathing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I could have guessed, uh, you know, you were in Spain from that thick Spanish accent. You (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I've been based in Spain for eight years and my Spanish is horrible. I just can't, (laughs) I just cannot, you know, I can understand a lot more now. But I remember when I first turned up, I was with my then girlfriend and I was chatting to one of her friends who was a lovely looking woman. And I was trying to impress her with my Spanish. And I thought I'd talk about the Ebola virus. But instead of saying Ebola, I said embolas, which means naked. (laughs) And what I meant to say, what I actually said to her is, would you get naked? And she looked at me and smiled and in English said, not here, David. (laughs) <laughs> at least did you, follow, no. did you follow that up with that you were very embarrassada embarrassada uh, yeah. that's the other big one yeah right i'm muy embarrassada oh you're very pregnant are you <laughs> <laughs> that is a mistake many have made yeah 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 no um yeah i think spain boy well, well we'll get to talk about spain but what a wonderful country yeah, it is it is yeah yeah, I actually was – we could talk about it a little bit right now because I'm kind of curious. I actually – leading into our conversation here, 
I was like, I wonder, like, what's being seen in Spain right now? Extremadura is a fabulous area for migration, right? For bird migration. It is, but you know, there's other spots in Spain which pick up much more. I mean, for example, along the coast, where you know the coast, coast of Galicia and um, and uh, where is where else is there? Asturias sure. around that area, you get a lot of stuff, especially uh, North American vagrants showing up there. Yikes. And then over, over yeah, exactly over in the uh, the east, just south of Barcelona, the Ebro Delta, you get stuff picked up all the time there. And then south of us in Extremadura, you got you know Tarif Tarifa in the uh, Straits of uh, Gibraltar. Yesterday, I think uh, a, a golden uh, was it Sudanese the Sudan golden sparrow uh, oh, wow, turned wow. up, which that's was like oh yeah, that's yeah. a good looking bird too. That's not just your your yeah. average vagrant. Yeah, you got, you guys are well inland, so I guess you're probably as well known for your your breeding birds as as any. Yeah, but. Anything can turn up anywhere at any time. And I think a lot of people that come to Extremadura, um, they are all about looking for the classics, you know, the staples, the the busters, the sand grouse and the larks. And they're not looking for anything else. And you're looking at an area which I think is just under the size of Kentucky. So it's a big area. Mm. And it's maybe 16 full-on birders covering that whole area. Wow. So things are missed. Um, you know, last few weeks we've had things like Eleonora's falcon, which is oh, a Mediterranean yeah. species, but in Extremadura, maybe one turns up or one's found every year. Um, I think yesterday or day before, there was a marsh sandpiper found. But I believe that this stuff turns up all the time. It's just that everyone cannot cover everywhere, you know? It's sure. just it's such a huge place. And it's so bloody hot as well at the moment. I saw <laughs> there's a laughing gull over there someplace now. Uh, yeah, that's up in the north. That's um, probably Galicia or Asturias yep. or someplace like Galithia that. Galicia is where it is. Yep, Galicia. Yeah, Galicia. Yeah, no, I, I heard too that uh, you're talking about the heat, that there's a major drought and that, you know, a lot of the wetlands are basically drying out at this point. Is that true? Is it, I mean, I, I think it was going on last year as well, if, if I remember right. Well, this whole drought business has been ongoing. I mean, there was one year I was here and it didn't rain for over 18 months. Um but having said that, I mean, a lot of the reservoirs in Extremadura still have water. They're maintained, you know, artificially, so they still contain water. Some rivers are dry, others aren't. And there's some places like Cota, Cota de Niana, um, which um, is famously in trouble because um, people have been siphoning off the water to, you know, for agriculture illegally, uh, draining large areas that have been, you know, once really good for birding. But um, yeah, I mean, the temperatures. I guess this year I've tipped over the 40 degree mark, 110, whatever it is, or I, I can't make the conversion, but yeah, a couple, of, a couple of times this, this year, last year, the whole of August was practically over 40 degrees. So, you know, I think this year hasn't been as hot, but right. yeah, I mean, it's tough mm. going out birding in that kind of, you know, heat. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. 40 degrees Celsius is hot any way you slice it. That's, yeah. that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, you know, it's hard because when you go birding in that kind of weather, I mean, firstly, you've got to be in your car most of the time. Um, the mornings, there's activity, especially with passerines. I mean, at the moment, I've been sort of looking for, for migrants. I've been going to a couple of places that no one else goes to just to check bushes and stuff. And there's a few bits and pieces. And then come midday until about five 
There's nothing, nothing. I mean, a few larks, a few Thecla's larks, a couple of Iberian magpies, a few vultures overhead, but there's nothing. And it's really tough because when you're so hot, you know, it's hard to keep your concentration going and you just think, you know what, I'm going home. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's, it, it is pretty tough. But yeah. I love, my favorite time for birding in Extremadura is from September onwards, really, because in the autumn, as you say, there's lots of migration. There's millions, certainly, of uh, flycatchers, like pied flycatcher and spotted flycatcher coming through, as well as a whole load of warblers and other such birds. And plus, it's a great time for, for shorebirds as well. And as you get later into the year, November time, December, there's a few of those birds that still hang around. And also some of the rice fields have, have been harvested and they're actually wet and they're kind of these amazing kind of mini wetland habitats. And there's one particular um, area of, um, of rice fields, which I'd say is about probably 30 miles in length. Cont- you know, it's contiguous. It's not one whole sort of rice field. There's some fields that aren't rice fields at all, but there's several there's quite a few kind of wet fields along this 30-mile stretch. And some fields are empty, and other fields you just find a whole bunch of shorebirds. I remember once coming to a field, and I counted 401 rough in one little oh. field feeding oh. together. Obviously, just coming together. It's just amazing. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's, rough is one of those magic birds in North America because it it's a vagrant everywhere. And, you know, there's no place it sort of shows up. Uh, all the time kind of thing, but it's, it's could be found in any state or province. You know, it's like a, you could always migration find a rough somewhere. You have the possibility. It's kind of a magic bird. You know, there's not many like that, right? Um, fork it, it flycatcher. Forktail flycatcher. Yeah. Just, uh, it's not, it's rare, but not so rare that, you know, your chance of finding one is zero but you could, but every, you find one, it's a, it's, it's a vagrant, you know, we don't have them here, at least so in general. It reminds me, I of like there, they used, there used to be a series called in birding magazine. They did, I don't know if it was for a, a year or a couple of years and it was, it was called possible anywhere. And it was like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was like, you know, rare birds that pretty much could turn up just about anywhere, you know? Right. And that would have, that would have fit the bill. Mm-hmm. Was it was it like predictions? Uh, it was more like you should be keep your eyes out for this bird. Like it, like forktail flycatcher was one where you know Cape Cape May I think holds has got more than just about any other spot. Um, the only one I've ever seen was a Cape May. The only one I've ever seen in the ABA area. And, but um, you know they they turn up and they could turn up in any any state any Canadian province. Basically they they stray widely and can turn up anywhere. And rough is sort of the same. Like they can really turn up. So it was more like the series was like, all right, people keep like, look at this bird, be prepared. This could, this would be a mind blower that could potentially turn up in your neck of the woods. Um, So, you know, just be alert. Because, you know, North America is so big that we have some vagrants that really only show up in the East coast or only show up in Florida or only show up in the West, but rough and forked flycatcher could just show up anywhere. That's kind of a cool thing. When you get rough coming, you just get them in their non-breeding plumage. You ever get them with vestiges of their summer garb? Almost, almost any month now, they could turn up. Yeah, um, we get actually a fair number in the spring. In where when you do get 
um, you know, males. We a lot are sort of reeve types, female young young birds in in autumn um, or in the spring. But uh, you can get females. But but there are like they 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 like. I don't know if they've been proven to breed in Alaska, but they likely have bred in Alaska. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't and, think I don't think they've been proven to breed. Yeah, you know, I've seen displaying yet, males anyway. in Barrow, but in Ukiavik, yeah. but, um, but yeah. you know, those, those things will display to anything, you know, they, they really will. It's <laughs> kind of like, eh, they're, you know, loose with their, they're, they're such cool uh, birds. I, I, fe- I, I feature them in my <laughs> pornithology talk, um, where, where we talk about, you know, there's the, the different kinds of males. There's the, the, uh, the ones that, you know, there's the the red collared ones, the black collared ones, the salt and pepper ones, and then you have these fader males. They're called, which look exactly like the females, but they have testes, and the testes are like two to three times bigger than the other males, and they basically kind of sneak around and have, you know, sneaky copulations. Um, when when, <laughs> when all those other males are duking it out for dominance, the the fader males, you know, are sneaking around doing doing sneaky stuff. Is it true that there's no two male ruffs alike in the world? Every single male's different. I think it's overstated be, a bit, yeah. but people certainly say that. Yeah. That's my take cool. anyway. I feel like, you know, there's there are like I'm sure that, you know, I don't know if it's quite like the the you know, the tail pattern on humpback whales or other whales where you, they all have sort of a fingerprint. I bet it's pretty close to that, but it seems like there are some male ruffs you see that are just kind of black collared and otherwise, you know, and, but they are super variable, of course, really, really variable. Yeah. Hey, yeah. David, you know, like, so we, we know you, we've met you, we've birded with you. Um, but a lot of North Americans, right. They don't really know the urban birder and what the concept is of the urban birder. I mean, we can, you can imagine us birding in urban zones, but what, what, what is, um, you know, what do you do as urban, as the urban birder and what have you done over the years? Cause I think a lot of people would be interested in finding out. Well, the urban birding thing, um, I guess I was born into because I was born in Northwest London, uh, with an innate interest in, in, uh, in natural history. And I always say, because I felt, because no one taught me, I had no mentor, I just had this interest. And I always say that in a previous life, I am convinced that I was a puma in the Rockies. <laughs> and towards the end of my life, I was stalking probably uh, some kind of ptarmigan or something like that. I'm not sure because I wasn't a birder at that point. And I, I think that I went to pounce and the bird flew before I could get to it. And I saw this bird fly and I thought, wow, you look amazing. So I became a birding puma and I stopped eating as well. And just before I died, I thought, this is a really interesting thing I got into here. Maybe if there's something else after this, maybe I can take this on. And luckily I was born a human and I did take it on. So when I was a kid, I had this interest. It started off in natural, well, basically it started off with um, invertebrates. Um, But I then noticed birds eating them. but no one was around me to sort of show me. So I kind of started teaching myself with no books. So I'd get birds, my own names. And basically I was told that you can only see wildlife in the countryside. You can't see it in the city. But I had no one to take me there. So in the end, I kind of turned around and looked around myself and realized actually there's a hell of a lot of stuff here. So that's where the urban birding thing started, even though I didn't realize I was an urban birder. Um, But I guess um, the reason why I 
championed this whole thing was because um, about 16 years ago, I received uh, an email from the BBC um, to appear on a program um, on the BBC, which was one of their biggest wildlife programs, as it was called, um, or is called, uh, Spring Watch, uh, to talk about my local patch in West London. So I did it. And afterwards, I really loved the idea of presenting and talking about wildlife in cities. And I thought, why not give myself a moniker? No one else has a moniker. And basically, I looked around myself and I saw, for example, Jamie Oliver, the famous chef. Mm-hmm. Um, he at the time was called the Naked Chef. So I thought, okay, I'll call myself, uh, what about the, the city birder? Mm, the urban birder, that sounds better. So basically, it started from there. And I realized... Initially, I, I, I invented the, the name to try and get myself more work in TV and media. But then I realized, actually, when I realized how, how shallow, how small that window of opportunity was, I decided that I would actually go out there and, and, and do a job because I realized that, you know, there's a lot of people living in urban areas who didn't actually understand that nature is all around you, all around, all around them. They thought that what I was told in the beginning, that you had to go somewhere else to actually see this sort of stuff. So it started from there. So my sort of vocation in life is just to try and get people to, just to, to try and engage them and get them to look up and, and to see that there's this wonderful world outside your front window. Just as I'm watching George now looking through his binoculars, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. It's everywhere. Yeah. What did you see, George, by the way? <laughs> it's it's this same i've had a, a an adult chippy fe- chipping sparrow feeding a juvenile chipping sparrow for the last uh week or so here and it's kind of satisfying because i actually i scattered i took some uh seed heads from some past flower oxy sunflower and just scattered them outside my my window here this morning and so they're feeding on that and so i was i was like that's pretty cool it looked like the the juvenile has a little wound, so I was just checking that. But it looks like it could be all right. See, I love all that because that's what for me urban birding is about. It's about just noticing this sort of stuff all around you, and not even you don't even have to know what you're looking at. And that's the thing I always say to people because the urban birder, as a as a name, as a brand, or whatever, is just a Trojan horse that I drive into town and say, guys. Get out here. Look, there's birds and other wildlife you can look at. You don't need to know anything. It's like Pilates. It's like yoga. And everyone comes out. It's like meditation. Oh, really? And then you get people on board. And that's really what I'm about. I'm about trying to get new people involved so that they can then, I'm a bridge. They climb over me and then they can either get involved or not, but they've climbed over me. And that's what I want them to do. Yeah, it's really I remember hearing about you ages ago and thinking that was really clever, you know, that you did take on um, a, a moniker in a sense that that it, it seems like um, more accessible in a sense because they know urban birder is not your name, right? But you're almost like a concept and and it it's there's, there's some magic about it just sort of saying, oh, well, I'm going to listen to what, you know, David's doing, you know, he's the urban birder, he's telling us about parks, he's telling us about birds and so on. And, and also being, um, birding in cities, it does make it like appealing to almost anybody. Cause even if you are living in the countryside and you have birds all around you, you, you can still glom on to the concept of love. There's wildlife everywhere, right? Like, you know, which is what you're, you're, you're talking about 
it's really cool. I don't know. I mean, yeah, well done. I, it is. It is really cool. It was, and it was a pleasure, David, to have you come here to Philly in in this this past spring uh, in in May. I, uh, you know, as a longtime birder, I I didn't start birding in the city that I grew up in and spent my whole life in until you know a little what twelve fourteen years ago or something like that. And I heard about you at the time uh, when I started. Um, birding in Philly and the, and it did speak to me as somebody who was like, you know, I've been exploring the areas outside the city for my, really my whole birding life. Now the biggest mystery to me is what birds are actually using city parks and city areas. Exactamente. That's exactly how I feel because it's all about exploring the middle of somewhere. Cause you know, we have so many things we don't realize that are all around us, but we're too busy going into the middle of nowhere. And I think obviously that's great to do that, but I get excited. I get really excited going to a city that I've never been to. I mean, a lot of cities I go to are Google and there's absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing about urban birding. I mean, I, I remember going to Seville once. Well, I've been there many times, but I was writing an article about Seville. I was just out of interest, Google to see if there's anything. There was nothing. So you become an urban explorer. You go into these parks, you go into these sewage farms, you go to these reservoirs, rivers, what have you, within urban areas, and you can find some amazing things. I mean, for me, the proof in the pudding is when you go, for example, to northern Serbia and you go to that fam now famous town of Kikinda, the owl capital of the world, their town square has had up to 850 long-eared owls sitting in the middle of a city, <laughs> the middle of an urban area, under people's noses. And no one knew about it until maybe 20 years ago because no one looked. Yeah. So for me, it's about turning in the opposite direction. You know, I used to be ridiculed 20, 20 years ago maybe for instead of going to the coast to some headland to watch for migration, I went straight to central London. I was looking because I was thinking – Whatever migration is occurring at these wonderful spots, there's a microcosm of it happening on my patch. And that was enough for me to see, you know, two. I remember one time there was um, a blockage of birds in southern England. And in one particular place called Portland Bill in southern England, there were 11,000 spotted flycatchers that showed up in that region. It must have been amazing. But instead of rushing down there, I waited for two days, went to my patch, and I found 11. And that for me was amazing because I was the only person on my patch. They were my birds. It was the biggest record ever. That's enough for me. Fantastic. Those those owls that yeah, yeah. your your presentation that you gave here in in Philly in May, and, and I know it's a talk you've given elsewhere, and it's a fantastic talk. If uh, if folks haven't had the pleasure of hearing David speak, you you uh, should try to find a way to do so. Um, but that really knocked everybody's socks off. Seeing the the imagery and hearing you speak about those long-eared owls um, <laughs> was just wild. See those in like urban urban circle there, really something. It's like tough bird to see most places, but there, different story. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I saw them for the first time uh, again about fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago, in the summer, and coming to a wood in a park in an urban area and seeing 22 nesting, semi-colonially nesting long-eared owls. I mean, that just blew my brain out. I mean, I couldn't believe it yeah. to see that stuff. I've never seen a long-eared owl's nest outside of Serbia in my life. I don't know if you guys have, but I've never seen one. Huh. 
Yeah. I mean, nesting in wicker baskets, you know, in the open, wow. it's incredible. <laughs> I think it's such a cool concept too. Um, I realized when I first started helping and guiding tours and I was doing this in the U S that folks were coming on birding tours as their excuse to go birding. And it was like an organized thing that they had to go to rather than just birding wherever they were at any point. And I, I think the urban birding concept is really cool for that too, just to embrace birding anywhere you are at any point, you don't have to go out of your way for it and you can enjoy the birds that are right in front of you. You know, I imagine the, that applies to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, Molly, is that over the last maybe, well, since 2019, I've started advertising day trips, city urban birding day trips anywhere in the world. I've got a whole roster of guides around the world and it's been so popular. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to Budapest, you know, okay, fine. Go, you know, and they go out actually within the city birding. And it's great. It's a really interesting event for people who aren't birders, but also interesting for people who are birders because they learn about sites that never knew existed. And often, yeah. often with urban birding, you get a lot closer to species than you would do if you're out in the rural areas or outside of cities, the same species. So it's a brilliant way of, of learning about birds as well, close to hand, you know, close at hand. I do. I think that is really true about inner city birding where it's, I, I'm not sure. I think there's probably a couple of things at work, but I've had it where I'm birding an inner city park and the birds simply don't seem frightened by me. And, you know, I think in some cases that's because they're, they may be entrained and they, they may be in a, in a small space where they really don't have many places to go. And then you have to be careful that you're not adding stress to them, or they may be just so stressed that they're just like, I'm eating, I don't care about you. I don't have time to worry about you. But, um, I think you also get situations where they're like, okay, there's a lot of people around here. None of them seem particularly interested in me. I'm going to just do my thing. And, and you see that. Like I, I, there's a number of birds that I've gotten much, much better photos of at, in inner city places than I ever would uh, outside the city. And there's certain birds where I think uh, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about uh, speckled rail uh, in the past as something that really – you know, is a, is a mythical bird that really has only turned up a few times, like in Buenos Aires and occasionally, you know, elsewhere. But there's very, very few records of that. And I'm convinced that, like, that, you know, there's certain birds that are they're actually easier to find in, in city parks than they ever would actually be out, outside of it. Um, and, for instance, I, in, I think like half of the Connecticut warblers I've seen in Philadelphia yeah, been at inner city parks, <laughs> and that is because they are subject to getting entrained in the city, and then have can have difficult time getting out of it. But um, which is a sad, kind of a sad way to see a Connecticut warbler. But um, nonetheless, you get to appreciate the beauty of a bird that you'd seldom get to see otherwise. You know, there's also there are some cities that are particularly good for birds um, because of where where they are. Like, um, you know. David, you mentioned being in London. London's sort of away from the coast, right? So you you know those big masses of of migrant birds, you know, are, are there, but they're not in. You know, if if that London was obviously you know in, in the southeast coast or something, it would be completely different. But uh, I I didn't realize when I was growing up in a city as a birder in Toronto that it is a fantastic birding city. There's so much the lake, you know, and hawk migration and shorebirds and everything. Chicago is a really fantastic birding city. I, I think because again, the lake San Francisco San being Diego. on a peninsula, you know, yeah. fantastic, you know? Hmm? Yeah. 
So you can't even, you know, the, the cities also range from being just amazing, good birding spots to, well, Central Park, also in New York, you know. To famous, sometimes world famous birding yeah, spots. I mean, I've never been to. I mean, I've been to three hundred and thirty cities now in the past sixteen years. Um, I worked out if I visited one city every weekend with over a million population, it would take me sixty six years. So that's my plan. Mm. And then after that, I spend the next sixty six years going to all the museums and you know all over places I should have gone. Anyway, it's interesting. Um, you know, London, you mentioned London. I mean, in the UK, our, our, our list of birds is roughly around about 620 species. But in London itself, it's been, uh, I think, 370 species recorded, including some national rarities. When Nauman's thrush, only ever seen in Britain once, and that was in London. But then as other cities, I mean, you mentioned a few in the US, and I know some of them. Um, I actually quite like Los Angeles as well, because I spent many years mm-hmm. going to Los Angeles every year practically and I had my favorite spot Iona wetlands and you know and other places I'd go to within the urban expanse and it's just incredible the number of birds you see but for me I mean going to places like Nairobi uh, in Kenya I mean their species list is what 600 for the city 600 I went to the national <laughs> park you know the uh, safari park they got next to the actual city itself and in one morning I clocked up 220 species just in, you know, in sight of, <laughs> in sight of the city. So it shows you that some city areas are interesting. And, you know, what I want to try and do is to convince people, firstly, that, you know, because most people live in cities, so to convince them, firstly, that there is life to be protected here. And once you have them enlisted, once they're part of what I term as the conservation army, they're more likely to dip their hands into their pockets, you know, to help um, raise money for whatever. They're more likely to sign petitions. They're more engaged, they're more invested, and also hopefully more likely to try and create greener and bluer areas within cities, you know, and understand that, you know, when we build a new area for, for housing, let's, let's put a pond in there or lake. Let's, 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 you know, let's plant a woodland. Let's, you know, let's get kids seeing this sort of stuff even if they live in a, in a city area, let's get them used to seeing green and blue and not feel the compulsion to pollute. And that's my dream, I think. I want to try and see if I can get people to think in a different way, really. Mm. You know, there's a cool event that people, um, I feel like a lot of birders may or may not know about, but um, and it's not necessarily exclusive to birds, but it's called the City Nature Challenge. And it is, it is done by, uh, it, it kind of happens under the auspices of iNaturalist. Um, but if you go to citynaturechallenge.org, um, you can, you can see who's participating. Um, and, and if your city is participating, you can kind of, you can, you can get involved. Um, and, uh, it, it's a pretty big deal here in Philly. People really get up for it. I think traditionally, uh, Cape Town, South Africa really kicks some butt because they've got uh they got the whole finbos biome and they've got just like a ridiculous number of endemic plants and insects associated with it but there's kind of you know there's some some healthy rivalries i would say between various um u.s cities um but at any rate that would be that'd be something i'd recommend folks check out usually i think it is in late april 
uh, is typically when it happens. Um, and it's, it's a fun thing to do, you know, get out and basically take photos of as much as you can try and document as much nature over the course of, uh, three, four days as you can for your town. So definitely something worth checking out. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, David, as somebody who has spent a lot of time, both in Europe, obviously, birding all over Europe, and has birded extensively in the United States uh, in a variety of different places. How how is birding as a pastime different? How are, how are the countries different? How how do how has that how what is your experience? And uh, would be curious for some of the differences between the two communities. Uh, obviously, these are really broad, diverse communities for the most part. Maybe, maybe not as diverse as would be ideal. But um, you know, what are what are your impressions of birding in the U.S. versus birding in Europe? Well, number one, there's far more birders, it seems, in the U.S. than there are in the in the, in, in Europe. Also, I find U.S. birders much more friendly. I've never had any issues with anyone ever in, you know, the probably 30 years I've been birding in the U.S. Um, I must make a confession here, basically. Um, in the beginning, when I was a kid, I was extremely, extremely jealous of the U.S. and their birders because I was thinking, you've got a massive list of birds yet you also have our birds as well as vagrants. You know, you're getting field fares and lapwings. It's not fair. How come you can see all that stuff and I can't see hardly any of your stuff? Um, but then when I started going to the US and realizing, actually, you know, it's a big place and not everyone has seen a lapwing uh, or a brambling. Never a seen a stuff. field fair, by the way. That'd be a lifer for me. <laughs> a genuine lifer. Well, yeah, because I actually thought everyone saw them quite regularly, but obviously not. Um, I, bet, I then began to realize, oh, it's different. But the other thing that struck me is the fact that how how great the average U.S. birder is when it comes to hearing birds. When I was in Philly, I didn't have the opportunity to bird with you, George, but I was with other people, um, and everyone was hearing everything. And I was like, I can't hear anything. How is you're telling me that that's a you know that that's a black and white warbler? I can't hear anything. You know, um, and in the end, I kind of not gave up. I just sort of switched off a little bit. But then I began after a while to hear some stuff. I realized, oh, I do actually hear warbling vireos now. Ah, I understand the song of a red-eyed vireo as well. You know, so it was like starting again in many respects. And I get that even more when I'm in South America. I mean, I just give up completely. I just let them just let me tell. Just tell me what you you know want to tell me. Um, so I found that really interesting how people learn the songs and calls, I think, much more than they do in Europe. I mean, of course, we hear stuff and, of course, we know what we're listening to. And maybe if the average American birder came over to Spain, for example, I'd probably hear more than they did. So maybe it's getting used to knowing what sort of sounds to listen for. And your brain, I guess, picks up stuff even though you can't necessarily hear it, you know, straight away, but you know it's there. Um so I, I find that awe-inspiring. I mean, I was in um, Presque Isle, Presque Isle State um, Park in Pennsylvania, and everyone, everyone heard everything. You know, I'm visual. <laughs> I, 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 I come to, to, to the belief now that there's three types of birders. There's 
there's a visual ones like me. And I think I'm visual because I was birding in a city. There wasn't any woods near me at all, really. So all the stuff I was seeing was in open vistas. And that's why I love wetlands. They're my favorite habitat. Then you've got people that can hear everything. I've got a friend here in, in next to Maduda, my friend Martin Kelsey. He can hear a pin drop in Poland. You know, he can hear everything. <laughs> and then you've got the rare people who can do both. And I totally envy those guys and girls as well. I just can't, you know, I just can't get onto that level at all. But I just find it interesting how we kind of develop our senses the way we do. And I think often it's down to where you started or what your background was in terms of, you know, where you, where you, you know, where you kind of started connecting to nature. For me, it was in a noisy city. So I didn't hear the sound so much. It's more about seeing. But anyway, that's one thing I noticed. I just, I love that. I love the fact when I go to, to the US, I can stand next to someone and know, oh yeah, you're hearing that. Okay, fine. But I love also going to wetlands because then I can compete because I can see. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's interesting your your thought about the friendly, you know, North American birders in that, you know, I'm not a real hardcore twitcher or anything currently, but back when I was younger, I, I, I used to do a lot more of that twitching stuff, you know, listing, um, chasing, whatever you want to call it in the US, Canada. But I did get to go to a couple of twitches in the UK and it was serious business, David. It was like people all lined up with their scopes, nobody talking. And uh, I rolled up with a couple of uh, British birders, you know, so, so I was kind of following their lead and they set up and said hello to the person next to them, but there was no talk about what they were looking at. And I thought, this is really weird, you know, because in the, in the U.S. or, you know, in Canada where I grew up, you'd go in there and go, hey, is the bird here? And somebody go, oh, look at my scope. And, you know, yeah. And then be, you'd all look and you'd be chatting. It'd be like a social hour. And, and there was sometimes some people go, come on, let's look at the bird, you know, stop talking. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it was so the opposite in the U.K. It was very, very intense. And uh, I thought like, wow, this, I'm not sure this is enjoyable, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, but, <laughs> I was going to say similarly with the, the density of birders. So maybe there's a total number of birders that's greater in the U.S., but it feels like birding is so much more wi widely known in the U.K. And that you see those pictures of like hundreds and hundreds of people gathered for vagrants in the U.K. And you rarely see that in the U.S. It's just so much more diluted. Photos from like that Acadian flycatcher a few years ago. Yeah. Like, <laughs> who's look like there's like 600 people and it looks they all look pretty similar also it looks like also like yeah, 600 scopes and yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah pretty it's interesting because i used to twitch when i was younger as well i think the last twitch i did was on the last sort of conscious twitch was when i was on yards of silly and 900 of us 900 of us stood along a lane for maybe five hours waiting for a philly video and you know, there was a bit of chatter, but most of the chatter was about, you know, oh, when I went and saw this, you know, it's all boring stuff for me. And I was standing there thinking, what am I doing here? And then a chiff chaff, a common chiff chaff popped his head out of, the, uh, out of a tree and everyone shouted out, that's it. And I thought, that's not it. I've never seen a Philly video before, but that's not, that's a chiff chaff. There was this mass <laughs> illusion, illusionation, illusionation, um, hallucination <laughs> yeah. even. Um but I, I just didn't enjoy that at all. I don't. I'm a. I much rather tried to be a finder than you know someone that runs after other people's birds. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I, look, I'm no disrespect, by the way, to my my British colleagues, because obviously, you know, I've got a lot of good friends in Britain and in Europe. In fact, yeah, Europe, especially, I've got some really nice friends who are, you know, really nice people as birders. But on on the whole, I think when I go to the US, I meet more people who are much more willing to sort of give you more information and, and to, to find out if you're okay. And especially when they hear your accent, they want to try and help you, which is is quite good. But talking about, sorry, one more thing, talking about listing, I'm not really a lister as, well, I, I keep a list, but I'm not a lister as such. But when it comes to extra Madura and when it comes to my eBird list, I have to be on December the 31st, I have to be at least in the top 10. I have to be. And I'm fretting because at the moment I'm 13th. <laughs> I've only seen 201 species. Uh-oh. I need another maybe seven or eight to get in the top 10. I don't know where that's coming from because I've got a week because I'm going back to England until November. What do I do? I'm, I'm torn. I'm, I'm upset. I don't know what to do. Yeah. You should hang <laughs> up on us right burning, now. Man. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> I feel the same way, by the way. I, I have a similar thing where I was like, I always, I set the goal of being, you know, getting over 200 in Philadelphia and trying to be in the top 10. And it looks like I am going to dip out on uh, that, that goal for the I'm, year. Every, every year I'm number one in nice. my yard. Yeah, so, <laughs> in my home. So there you go. You know, set the bar low so you can always succeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I I think there's there's a what you said about you know finding being a finder that is um, obviously the most exciting thing ever as a birder, right? But we always think about finding something super rare, but finding the eleven flycatchers in your local patch that is the equal level of excitement. If you're a patch birder or you're you know a city birder or whatever it is, the more restricted in a sense. You are in your your zone of birding. The more opportunities you have to be finding something cool for you, right? It may not interest somebody else that you saw something, or may maybe it does. But I think that's actually something really to be promoted in birding. That you know, we instead of driving around all over the place looking for rare birds, you can be in your place finding things that are unusual for you and your. It's place, such a great you know? point, so and and that's, patch birding it grounds you, yeah. right? It kind of gives you a benchmark by which you can assimilate information from other places that you go birding. So it's like. Not only do you derive the joy of of you know finding setting a new high count for you know whatever species in your in your patch you know you can you can add new species you can have fantastic exciting days but you can it can also just help you you know understand birds in a in a temporal and spatial way you know outside of your patch and and uh, I do think it's it's a great practice patch birding yeah I mean I, th- I think it's cool and Molly talks about you know her spot you know with not only about the birds but the trees and everything that's going on like you can actually concentrate on on learning something really in a, in a broad way when when you restrict yourself to a small smaller yeah, space totally. right? and, and it's not just the species you're seeing it's how they're behaving it's like you said where you're finding them there's all these different ways that you can start to understand birds and everything else on a deeper level i think the pandemic opened that up a lot like when people were stuck at home you start noticing more of that i i definitely did yeah when you stop and look that's when you see i mean i i i get a bit call me old-fashioned but i just get annoyed when people come up to me who aren't birders and say what are you looking for and i'm saying 
I'm looking for everything. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for, in terms of nature, I'm looking for everything. You know, <laughs> I just, for me, it's not about chasing after rare birds. It's about just being out and enjoying life and just seeing stuff, you know. And when you start doing that, that's when you start seeing the rare birds, you know. I, I just, for me, that's the only yeah. reason why I go out to just to, to get grounded and just to enjoy life. It's, it's one of the very few things I do in life that gives me complete 100% pleasure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, and, and the key is, I've always told this to people about birds. It's like you, you love it so much when you get to this level of love for birds and nature, you cannot keep it to yourself. There's no... You want to have other people do this. You know, you want your neighbor to sort of go, hey, what's that bird? And you get them a little further into it. And it, it just um, becomes uh, a thing that is just so wonderful that you cannot keep it to yourself, I, I feel like. That's one of kind of my, my goals, thought processes, you know, in terms of my birding over time. It's been, you know, it's not just touring we're doing these pelagics because it's a it's a job, but it's part of just getting others out there, you know, and looking. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's fun. Well, David, I think that's what's so cool about the model that you're building around your brand is that you just start with sharing the joy of birding. And then that's the gateway to all these other initiatives and projects and great things that can happen just from finding the the love of that. It's really cool. And it's so easy for people to see that because a lot of people come out with me who've never been birding before. And oh yeah, you just show them a, a bird, you give them a backstory, and that's it. Bam! Smile on their face. Oh my god, I didn't realize this was here next to where I live. You know, and that's that's where you know that's where they start getting interested. You know, it is so cool mm-hmm. to be excited and show your excitement for that to other people, and just show that it's okay to just be totally awed by things that have been right under your nose. And I, I love birding for sharing that, just expressing joy in that way too. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, what's a shame though, is that George, who has <laughs> been a urban birder has now moved to the suburbs. So he's now a suburban I've always birder. been a sub I mean, birder, but yeah, a... no, I, I think, <laughs> I think that is not entirely fair, Alvaro. Um, yeah. I, you know, my whole role here is to poke fun <laughs> and achieve <laughs> that goal at every chance you do. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I, as I'm, as I have well noted, I am still inside the city limits here, and that was not a small factor in choosing this neighborhood when we were choosing a home. Oh, so you're actually, oh, yeah. in the city. I did not know. I, I thought you were, you know outside of the boundaries of the confines of Philadelphia. I am less than a half a mile inside the city limits. In fact, one of the roads nearby is called um, Old Line Road. City <laughs> well, it's drive. called Old no. Line Road. It used to be the city <laughs> limit back in the day, but um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I love city, I love city birding as, as we've talked about a bunch and I am excited Um David, you'll be pleased to hear that I'm leading a series of bird walks this this uh, coming October. I'll be doing uh, every Thursday. Um, I will be leading a a 90 minute uh, bird walk in downtown Philadelphia at a little place called Independence Hall. Uh, kind of uh, you know where I like to call it the Bird Place of America. 
and uh, and I'll be uh, I'll be leading birdwalks there once you know what four four times uh, this this October and peak migration and that way I I get I get my urban urban birding fix as opposed to sort of you know urban suburban which I'm getting out here. But, uh, yeah, there, you know, and it, it is a really interesting place. It's kind of like our central park in a way it's, it's a big, big patch of green surrounded by, you know, concrete and glass and everything. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually the, the surrounding area is actually one of the, one of the most difficult places for birds in that there are a ton of window strikes there, but, um, but it is also, I think, a refuge for quite a few species and, and a, and a, and a, probably a startling diversity as well. So looking forward to that series of bird walks should be fun. You know, actually I'm think. you know, we sometimes have our little trivial questions that we, we, we come up with and people who listen will, will send us answers. But I just thought we're talking about urban birder. We're talking to a Philadelphia person. There are very few birds actually named four cities. Philadelphia yeah. Vireo is one of them. Baltimore Oriole, right, in, in North America. There's probably Bogota, Bogota yes, or that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Bogota Rail. Yeah, yeah Bogota Rail. But I bet how, I, it'd be kind of a cool thing to see how many birds in the world are actually Warbler. named yeah. for a city. You know, because I bet there's not that many. I bet there's less than Yeah, I don't know you if you know, count in, si- in scientific huge names, number. we also have Morning Warbler. Just yeah. English names, I'd say. Yes. Yeah. Morning Warbler. You know, yeah. is Geothopus, yeah. Philadelphia, and Bonaparte Skulls, Croicocephalus, Philadelphia. Yeah, and, and Bonaparte uh, I, I suspect, suspect there's not many scientific. Ringbill Gull? Delawarensis. Yeah, so that's... Oh, that, yeah, Delaware. Yes, yeah. it's that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, right? You start thinking about it, because in Europe, there probably aren't very many names. No Suffolk Warblers right? or... Uh, no, yeah. there isn't. Apart, no, just... Uh, well, Dartford. Dartford. Yeah. Dartford mm. Warbler's uh, Sandwich Turn is named after a town. Yeah. Nice. But, guys, yeah. how many birds on the American list? Can you name me five birds on the American list whose international name is just one word? Go. Rough. Kill deer, rent it. Okay, finish. Okay, move on to the next one then. Sora. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked the wrong people here. <laughs> I think that's one that's come up on our podcast before too. <laughs> Sapeoa. We love these There's trivial really things, you know. Ones. I mean, we were getting letters the other day about uh, we uh, the the single families yeah. with. Uh, well, have to, we'll have to bring that back. You know that how many families have? Like just, the, we were talking about the Accenters, right? The Prunella, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Accenters. They're all in the same genus, but they're a single family. So all members of the family yeah. have just one genus and what the biggest number was. And it was, I guess it's, it's oh, wow. leaf warblers. Philoscopus. Um, yeah. 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 Philoscopus. Because they're now Philoscopidae. They're actually a oh, okay. family sure. different, you know, Listen, they used to be, right? But uh, was I, for, for, for two, for maybe a week, I was the world's expert on sang, on uh, sandgrouse. So really? I did. Yeah, I I went to the British Bird Watching Fair and I, I entered Bird Brain of Britain and my chosen subject was sandgrouse. How many species of sandgrouse are there in the world? And how many how many genus? How many genera? There's Terracles. Uh, oh jeez. Oh my god, look at him. Is it like a dozen that, species? But I want to say how there's many? like oh. 
He knows. Yeah, George is the guy. I've seen a few, but how I'm, many? I'm going to guess there's like 17 species and like four genera. Molly? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'll go with the odds. I'll go for 16 species. Oh, she's doing, you're doing the old prices is right. Era. You know, go without. <laughs> Highest number of right. right. yeah. 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 You just one dollared yeah. me, Molly. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'll go higher. <laughs> 20, 20 species and. Okay, well, well, Molly's right. There's 16 species <laughs> and just just two genera. There's the Turkeles and there's the uh, the uh, oh. Tibetan and Palaces sandgrass. I never, Sapra, whatever it is. Yeah, so, I, I can't, can't remember. I, I was yeah. assuming that there'd been some new <laughs> ones that I didn't know, um, but. But I failed. I failed. At least I was close. On the, <laughs> I was close on the species. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, by the Price is Right. Yep. You know, system. It did. It yeah. worked. <laughs> well, let's see here. I'm just looking. I'm looking at uh, Wikipedia. And. Uh oh, that's all yeah. lies in there. Well, yeah. Here he does have they. <laughs> Should go to go well, to, sure. to the world. I was just going to start here. This is the first thing that popped up, but uh, um, yeah. Did Did you know, David, that sand grouse have been yes. introduced? Yeah, to, I, was, to I told Hawaii, you I was right? a world yeah. expert. Yeah, you didn't believe say. me, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just thought maybe you know maybe that little bit you didn't know. Terracles and Serhaptes. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say it's a very sexy group of birds, especially oh. if you're coming from North America. Like they, they, they just sort of like the mystery of deserts and vast open spaces, you know. And and I remember like the idea of seeing chestnut bellied chestnut bellied in, in Hawaii, right? Chestnut bellied sand grouse. It's like, or is it black bellied? I can't remember. Uh, I thought it could have been black bellied. Yeah, it's one of the two. But I, I just so. remember being like the idea of seeing yeah, sand a, grouse. I remember, I, I remember seeing them on the Big Island one time, and I was like, "Oh my god, there they are!" Yeah, but yeah, like there's 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 such a romance to those birds. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a sand grouse. Well, I haven't seen sand grouse a lot, obviously, because they live in North America. But I've never seen mm-hmm. one on the ground. I've mm-hmm. only seen them flying. One of the That's the first sad, one I ever right? photographed, I like stalked. I was in Ethiopia and I like stalked sad. it and like got closer and closer and closer. And then I came back. I was like, I think I got some pretty good pictures, you know. And they were like, you know, there's lions there. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> and, and like that night, we like we like where we were sleeping. There was lions. Like man, it was before I'd ever seen a lion, and they were howling. Man, they were roaring right there. And I was like, huh. Should have thought that through a little bit more. It's probably Could a pretty close call. Um, oops, speaking of lions. Yeah. Oh, there's a lion there. Yeah, it showed up there on your screen, yeah. your, your your cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we should probably get to scooting and let David go. It's late over where you're at, David. He's... Yeah, he's got to drive uh, to the other end of Extremadura to, uh, you know, be up at dawn for two or three yeah, new species. I've got, for his bar- list. I've got a barn owl <laughs> pair that lives literally a mile away, and I've never seen them ever. Um, oh, the migrants are coming oh. through now. I still need to see Eurasian wryneck. I normally see that, you know, in January. I've not seen one at all this year. I've not seen common red start yet. 
It has lots of species that are fairly regular, low-lying fruits I've not had yet this year, and I'm going next week back to England. It's terrible. <laughs> you'll, 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 you'll be able some. to get some. You'll be able to get a few new ones. Yeah. But he yeah. needs enough to move them three yes. spots. I need huh? eight species. Wow. Oh. Better hustle, man. <laughs> mm. So it's good to have goals. Well, David, thank you so much for your time here today and for for talking to us. Um, have you got anything coming up or any uh, people can find you right at the Urban Birder, right? That's your site. Well, firstly, uh, thank you very much, guys, for having me. Been a complete pleasure. I loved every second of it. Love talking about birds. It's not often I get to do that, to be honest. Uh, surprisingly, um, you can find me at theurbanbirderworld.com. And I'm also on all the socials, including Instagram. And I'd love uh, to meet you all one day because I'm coming back to the US. I'm, I think the US is a regular spot for me now. I love coming over and seeing my friends. And uh, I'm making new ones, of course. And you are all welcome to come to Spain as well. Not all at once, obviously, but come over. <laughs> we'll, we'll all come. It'll be a lifeless event. Yeah. We'll all, we'll all yeah. come and crash your pad. <laughs> yeah, you 30 to... of our best friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll That's bring the nice. vino. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks so much, David. And thanks, Thank everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back again soon. Cheers, everybody. Hi, everyone. Adios. Bye. Bye.